Steve's going to lead us in prayer as we uh, head into God's Word this morning. Dear Lord, we gather as your people, coming together into your Word. Open our eyes, our ears, and our minds that we may see, listen, and understand your Word, the words that you have to tell us. This morning we especially ask that you be with Pastor Steve, your servant, as he brings those words and puts them into our English words to help us clearly know what you have to say to us. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Well, if this is the first time you're joining with us, we are kind of in the midst of a series on the Psalms where we have been looking at a few of them. Uh, so you feel free to grab your Bible or your phone or whatever you're using these days uh, to read Scripture and turn to Psalm 110. Uh, this week, we're going to be on Psalm 110. Next week, we have my friend, um, Pastor Becky Chapkus, who will be back, and she will briefly deviate from Psalms to preach out of the book of Romans chapter 8. And then the week after that, we'll be back into the Psalms for one more week as... Uh, Emily Hall, our worship coordinator, will lead uh, us that week and preach out of a psalm, and I don't remember which one, but look forward to it. We'll see you in a couple weeks, and then uh, you can find out as well. Uh, as we had mentioned earlier, you probably experienced some celebrations maybe last night or the nights before or maybe even further where you saw or heard fireworks. But it was probably a little bit different this year than maybe years past. I don't know about you, I didn't hear about cities that were lighting off fireworks and big people gathering in areas at all. I didn't, I didn't read about that. Typically we'd have big celebrations and lots of fireworks going off, even smaller communities gathering together, shooting off fireworks together or having someone in charge of it, hopefully. But this year it was different. I was reflecting with someone else that it was their neighborhood, their little cul-de-sac where there was fireworks going off here in Princeton Estates where the church is located. Uh, I'm here as well. And, and there was my neighbors right to the, the left of me that were shooting off fireworks. They had some few people gathered in a, in a driveway. And, and just a few houses down the way, there was additionally some celebration going on, fireworks going up. And then in streets... Uh, back beyond the trees, there was fireworks that would peek over those trees. And, and even to the south, we would see it as well. All these little different spots where you can see uh, some type of celebration on display. Pointing to something else. Anytime you see those fireworks that are pointing, they always point to something else. A celebration of, of what's happened in the past. Many groups, I could probably see like seven, eight, or, or nine of them right from my driveway enjoying and celebrating, pointing to the beginning of our nation. Similarly, and maybe this is a little bit of a, a stretch for you, but when you go look for Psalm 110, you're not just going to find it at Psalm 110. There's going to be multiple other places in Scripture that are going to point directly back to Psalm 110. In fact, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm 
in the entire New Testament. You find it all over the place. You look in Matthew, the book of Matthew, you'll find it there. You look in the book of Mark, you'll find it there. You look in the book of John, you'll find it there. You look in the book of Luke, all four Gospels, you'll find Psalm 110. But that's not all. You'll find it in the book of Hebrews, in 1 Corinthians, in Romans, and also in Ephesians. Each of those places pointing to something else. Pointing back maybe to the whole psalm, but pointing to something else. I think it has a point of hope. It points to to hope where we get to see hope, experience hope. And maybe you get to get a sense of what that is when we read this passage together. I'm going to be reading from the New International Reader's Version this morning. That's the the version of the NIV that's written at a third grade level. So let's read this. It says, A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your control. The Lord will make your royal authority spread out from Zion to other lands. You will rule over your enemies who are around you. Your troops will be willing to fight for you on the day of battle. You will be wrapped in holy majesty. Just as the dew falls fresh early in the morning, you will always be young and strong. The Lord has taken an oath and made a promise. He will not change His mind. He has said, You are a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on that day when He is angry. He will judge the nations. He will pile up dead bodies on the field of battle. He will crush the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and receive new strength. And He will win the battle. I don't know what you were expecting when you heard the most, uh, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I don't know what you were expecting, uh, but I don't know if you were expecting those last couple verses, the passage that says the Lord will be the judge of all nations in the world and, and that dead bodies will be piling up and that rulers will be crushed from the earth. wouldn't necessarily see that this is a a comforting passage to me and in that level speaks of judgment but I think there's two images that can help us think about the word hope And, and and it's really places that Israel themselves had hope in for better or for worse They consistently, the Israelites did, put their hope in their kings and their priests. The kings are the ones that kept their enemies at bay. Verse 1 alluded to this king that's going to come and and all the enemies are going to make a footstool is one of the way, one of the translations said all the enemies are going to be put under this king's control. And then there's the priests. The priests are the ones who would atone for the sins of the people. The priests would 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 intercede on behalf of the people to God and bring messages from God to the people. The priests were tasked with 
making the people right with God. And as much as the Israelites trusted in God, as much as they trusted and put hope in God, unfortunately, there was a day when they started to misplace their hope. Instead of hoping in God, they started hoping in the kings. Instead of hoping in God, they started hoping perhaps in the priests. I think much like the Israelites, it's easy for us to start to misplace hope. Perhaps placing hope in a political or governmental power, in officials, perhaps in in monarchies, in kings or in queens or in parliamentary systems. Hope can be put in place a specific type of government, a specific political leading we could have hope in. We could have hope in specific individuals or ruling bodies. I think we can see it maybe a little bit in some of our nation's campaign posters. One of them that I remember, uh, I think it was about 2008, or the 2008 election or somewhere around there, um, President Obama had a poster, a campaign poster, that had a tricolor, so three-color picture of him looking. And then it usually had a blue word in the bottom, and it said, hope. Someone just mouthed that here. Sometimes there's other words that would be said. The same thing, blue, it would say change. Or it would say progress, depending on what area that poster was being put in. Or towards the election, it would say vote. And I think we can see it other times too where, where there's this desire for hope and it's, and it's played off in these campaign posters. Another one, I think it was President Reagan had a slogan which read, let's make America great. Hope in a better America. And then that phrase was reprised just this last election cycle by President Trump, let's make, or make America great again, right? Or now, uh, keep America great. And perhaps it's not just the slogans, perhaps even some of these posters put hope in specific individuals by the phrases, like, I like Ike was one. Or this one, Nixon, the one. Nixon is the one, was, was, was uh, one of his. Or a time for greatness, President Kennedy. No matter what political leaning we have, my invitation to us is let's not misplace our hope. The Israels wanted a, Israelites wanted a government like, like all the other nations that they had. All the other nations they saw had kings and Israel did not have one and so they wanted to get a king. Because I, I think to be honest, it's probably a little bit easier to point to a king as a ruler than a theocracy, which is what they had, which is God as a ruler. And, and they only know they could point to you know, the temple or they could point to something else, the tabernacle, but you know, it, was, it was hard for them. They didn't have someone to point to maybe. And maybe that's why they wanted a king. 
how would other people understand that God was the one that was leading them, that was the one speaking to them? And they started envisioning, maybe if we get the right person in that position, if the right king is put in place over top of Israel, we're going to experience the peace and the delight and the shalom that God had for us. He's promised that. And so they looked to those promises as they received their kings. They, they hoped for those promises to come true of prosperity and justice and mercy that that king would bring. A king that would bring all that blessing. And they, they found out more information as, as they heard about the shalom that was coming uh, that the, the line of David would never end. David, the second king of Israel, his line would continue on to eternity. So they knew that, that the one who would bring hope, who would bring peace, would be from David's line. And, and they imagined perhaps a political leader, a, a military leader, because David was, was such a great warrior before he was king and he was this man that was considered after God's own heart. Who can be better than David, maybe they thought. And this king who is a son of David would be referenced as it is in this psalm as Lord. Imagine that. David referencing his own son as Lord. I don't call Peyton my oldest son Lord, nor does Cohen get that title, and, and Benjamin does not get it either. So imagine calling your own son one to come, a new king. Lord. And Israel perhaps wondered, where is this? When is, when is this king going to come? Is it going to be the next one? Because the next one after David's the one that's going to build the temple. Maybe it's going to be that king, Solomon, who is so wise, who will, will be the one who brings prosperity and peace. And so they started hoping only, perhaps, in their king. Thinking that the king was the one who was going to bring about those things. They were focusing on God's promises, which were good, but they were focusing on those promises coming through an individual that they were hoping in, rather than God Himself. Maybe another way to put it, at times, the people of God confuse hope in God's promises for hope in God Himself. When that happens, I think it's a little bit unfortunate. It almost seemed that Israel underestimated the brokenness of the world that they lived in and the brokenness of the people that they were hoping in as well. To consider that one king, one leader would be able to change the entire course of the world. To change the entire course of their nation. Maybe they were putting too much hope in one person. 
that all of a sudden that one person will get there and everything will be restored and everything will be new and everything will be renovated. I wonder where our hope is. People, in parties, in a nation, in God. As Israel made this unfortunate mistake of putting hope in people rather than, than God, as they thought that one king would, would make all the difference. Unfortunately, that's not what they saw. It began with Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. But almost every leader after that, except for maybe a few exceptions, led the people to do evil in the sight of the Lord. When the people put their hope in the kings, they were left with a wake of dis disappointment and hurt. When they put their hope only in the kings, they were left with injustices. For the Israelites, kings, it was not, not the place to lay their stake of hope. There's another image in this passage that I invite us to think about, the, the image of the priest. But I think that's another way, too, that our hearts can grow a little, little wayward. The Israelites had a, a hope in a priestly system that, that God had set up for them and, and God had given them the rules of the way to run and how offerings should be given and, and festivities to celebrate. But that religious system of the day, too, began to take on practices in their own culture. The book of Malachi speaks of how the religious system of the day, including the priests, became corrupt. They would offer animals that were not the best, not the purest. Something that God had forbade. They would add man-made traditions to the way they would worship. The kings would lead them down places of idolatry by allowing other places of worship, other high places as they called them. And all the while, the people and the priests went along with it. They substituted a desire to be right with God and allowed other things to allow for convenience in locations. They substituted their desire to offer quality sacrifices to God But they kept giving animals that weren't worthy of God. Offerings that were subpar. They continued at some level to worship the God that had led them out of Egypt. That had been with them the entire time as, as they conquered land. But over time, their worship of God became a cultural clone or a copy of the system that God had designed. Makes me wonder if sometimes our hope, the hope of Christianity for many people has turned to a cultural copy. Cultural copy of Christianity focuses on what we want and what we desire and beliefs follow along. 
cultural copy of Christianity doesn't focus on life transformation of our hearts, of our minds, and of the way we act. Cultural copy of Christianity does not focus on the Lordship of Christ over all our lives. Instead, allows us to keep maybe a little bit more of a portion of our money back. Cultural copy of Christianity has a low view of Christ and His authority. Perhaps it ignores greed under the mantra of living out the American dream. Cultural copy of Christianity ignores significant problems in the world like pornography and just sweeps it perhaps under the rug a little bit too much. Cultural copy of Christianity ignores gluttony in abundance, and says, I'm just enjoying what the Lord has provided. I wonder what else a cultural copy of Christianity does. But here's the thing. The priest that was spoken of in this passage isn't part of the system. Melchizedek isn't a part of the regular priestly system. To give you an example, I'm going to talk about Legos a minute. Kids like them. Legos has a specific system. All the pieces can fit together in specific ways, right? And they fit really nice until there's these cultural copies of Legos. They're not part of the system. They don't quite fit into the system the way it was actually meant to be. They tried to, to clone it, but it's not quite as good until the patent ran out and then they could make them the exact same way, right? Uh, they, they don't quite fit in. And, and here we have the, the cultural copy then, that priestly system that's going on, and you have Melchizedek who's outside the system. Doesn't quite fit in the way that it originally was. You see, all the priests were descendants of Aaron, the high priest. They were, they were all supposed to be in, in that lineage, the older brother of Moses. But before Aaron, there was one priest, Melchizedek, mentioned I think just actually twice, once here in the psalm and, and the other time in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek meets Abraham coming back from some military conquest, and, and, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And Abraham gives him an offering, a tithe. The text simply says that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. There's no information about uh, his ethnic heritage, his origin, his parents, there's oftentimes genealogies that we see in Scripture that, that say where a person was, where they fit into whose line, and so on. But we don't know anything of that. And then a thousand years later, Melchizedek seemingly disappeared until David brings him back up in this psalm. Quotes, saying that the Messiah, the One who is to come, this new King, is going to be a priest forever just like Melchizedek. 
Nothing more. The point is that Melchizedek was another symbol of something going on in the Old Testament. A different type of priesthood. Completely different than than the system, you could say. The system of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek became a kind of symbolic pointer to a priesthood that had no beginning and no ending and one that would continue on forever. And that's where we place our hope. In a different kind of priest. A priest that doesn't quite fit the ordinary system. But the thing about Melchizedek is that he wasn't just a priest. He was actually a king. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Melchizedek was both a king and priest. And if if you look a little further into Melchizedek's name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness and he is a king over a place called peace. The king of righteousness over a king kingdom of peace. I hope we don't misplace our hope in some lesser king, some lesser priest. Don't misplace your hope in something that just appears to be good. Place your hope in something that is the greatest. The the greatest king, the, the greatest priest in the line of Melchizedek. The Son, who David would call Lord, is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace. Jesus, the great High Priest, the ultimate bringer of peace. The ultimate image of God's righteousness. Jesus, like Melchizedek, is a priest forever. He is eternal. He is the One who will intercede forever on our behalf. It's not a cultural copy. Jesus is the One that can atone for all His people's sins. And because He can do that, we obey Him. We enter His kingdom through His sacrifice, but also we obey Him as our Lord. It's an interesting quote I came across. It was it's said three years ago from Pastor Timothy Keller. He said this, the Gospel is an exclusive truth. What he means is there's only one way to be saved, and that's Jesus. It's an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. The most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world because Jesus came and He died for all and He invites all into His life. 
He invites all to live underneath His care. And in response, we recognize Him as King of our life, as Lord of our life. And it means that we don't leave anything out of His grasp. Because you can't receive the Kingdom without receiving the King. Without receiving the Lordship of the King. Jesus isn't just Lord over our spiritual problems in our life, but He's Lord over every single thing. If Jesus is Lord of your life, then everything falls into line the way you eat. The way you parent. The way you act when, when no one else is looking. What you look at when you're at your computer. What you see. And perhaps even who we vote for. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would accept Your Lordship over every single area of our life. We desire to see Your Kingdom move in and through within us by way of Your Spirit. Consistently transforming us day in and day out to look more and more like You. That we would become aware more and more, just as Paul did, of how sinful and broken we really are. And that we would only hope. That we would realize that our only hope is You. As our sacrifice, as our Savior, and as our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.